Tandem Nomads, episode 28. And then at the end of the day, having to take that information and making my own call on what to do that feels safe for me, not for anybody else, but for me and my family. Because mm-hmm. everybody has very different experiences, very different levels of comfort with uncertainty or risk mm-hmm. and no judgment on wherever that is in the spectrum. I just had to decide what was right for my family and trust that it was what Welcome to Tandem Nomads, where inspiring expat partners from around the world share with you how they turn the challenges of relocation into great opportunities. So are you following your partner abroad for his or her career? Then Tandem Nomads is the place for you. Go to tandemnomads.com and sign up for the newsletter. Hello, Nomad Nation. This is Emel Deregi. Our guest today is Sunday Schneider. Bean. This episode is a little bit special as Sunday and I recorded this interview only a few days after the devastating attack in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso that happened on 15th of January 2016. Since then, Sunday had to leave the country with her children while her husband is for now still staying in Burkina Faso. I really wanted to show my appreciation to Sunday because not only she didn't cancel our interview despite the shock she was in after what happened, but she also took the time to share her experience and insights with us in a very grounded way. This episode was supposed to be an episode related to Sunday's experience in building her portable business, but I'm glad that she was very open to share with us more about what has happened few days before. This wasn't Sunday's first crisis situation in Ouagadougou. Therefore, although this was a very extreme event that no one can really prepare for, she could give us some great tips to handle critical situations related to security and stability in countries called of high risks. So let's now listen to this episode with Sunday Beans. Sunday, are you ready for the ride? Yes, I am. Sunday comes from the United States. While she was backpacking in her early 20s across Asia, she met a guy who comes from Switzerland. She married him, joined him in his home country, took his nationality and raised two kids with him. Today, they live in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. Sunday is an intercultural specialist and a coach. She has helped individuals from over 40 countries go through transitions and change. She also works with multinational companies and NGOs to support their employees. Before starting her own business, Sunday was the head of intercultural management of a major company in Switzerland. So Sunday, this was a very short resume of who you are. Is there anything that I've missed and tell us what's happening in your world today. Okay, uh, thank you for the introduction. You've hit the main points um, for sure. Um, I guess I would add that not only am I um, interested in supporting expats um, through their intercultural journey professionally, it's something that I hold very dear to my heart and it's a personal passion. And um, what's going on in my world today? Unfortunately, um, in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, it's quite heavy-hearted because we just recently experienced um, terrorist attacks on Friday evening and our community is in mourning. Um, So that is honestly a reality that we're feeling all over the planet um, and it got very, very close to home. 
this yeah. weekend. Yeah, it must have been quite a challenging time and it is still. And our praise and thoughts really go to all the people in Burkina Faso and not just Ouagadougou, but I guess the whole country is shaken and our world is shaken and really thinking dearly of, of your friends and, and all the people there. Thank you so much. I'd love to know more about your story, about more how you got to your journey. But this is actually a very, very important topic that I wanted to discuss with you about expatriation. When we get to a situation where we we live in a country that's in difficult, goes through very challenging times. You've been in Bukifa so far since 2013, I think. Yes. And yes, the country has also gone through a lot of challenges, not not yeah. just today, but even before you had uh, political transitions, you had Ebola. And now, unfortunately, we have this crisis with the terrorism. Um, so how do you... How do you how did you as an expat experience this this situation and uh, take us through it? I mean, I don't okay. know what's the right question here to ask. No, I do, I totally yeah. hear what you're saying. So it's really good question. Um, also, because I am not I'm an intercultural specialist and I support expats, but I'm also a mom. I'm a woman. I'm a you know I'm a person who goes through her own process. So it's a really good question. Um, I can put it in context. You know, before. I had adapted to life in Switzerland, and Switzerland is known for its high preference for security. They have insurance for homes, for pets, for unborn children, really a very, very um, secure area. So I transitioned. I had both my children in Switzerland from a, sort of the epitome of security in Europe, and then I moved to West Africa. And so for me, it was already a stretch taking my children um, to West Africa because I had less, um, so the quality of medical um, support that was possible was lower. The risk of malaria was higher, for example. So I'd already um, brought myself on an individual level to a stretch. But the way I coped with that was through getting information, talking to locals and to expats living in Ouagadougou and asked how did they cope with that, what are the real risks, not what's just imagined in my mind, mm. and I got um, more grounded information. That helped me make the transition. But when um, the Ebola crisis came, although thankfully it never reached Burkina, it felt very close because we were in West Africa and it was you know, in the general direction in terms of the map, so it made me really nervous of dealing with a level of uncertainty that I've never experienced before. And that is so important for any expat, um, whether you're dealing with uncertainty of what did that person mean, did I understand it correctly, to what's going to happen to the personal safety of my family. So that was um, a totally new way of dealing with uncertainty for me um, with the Ebola crisis. And thankfully, um, these crises that came up um, – happened in sort of a uh, escalating way where the, the Ebola crisis was in the region but not in our area. So I was very nervous about that. And the strategies I developed for myself and with my husband and in support of my expat community who had a lot of experience with even more critical situations built up some sort of management. And then the next thing happened with the revolution that was terribly frightening for me as well and through um, sort of a strengthened a strengthen understanding with my husband and I, um, we developed a plan, what feels right for us, and when do we make a decision to change our situation. So it's everything has happened sort of gradually um, in terms of building my tolerance for uncertainty, 
um, grounding my understanding in facts from people who are very experienced um, in, let's say, security or highly experienced expats. And then at the end of the day, having to take that information and making my own call on what to do that feels safe for me, not for anybody else, but for me and my family. Because mm -hmm. everybody has very different experiences, very different levels of comfort with uncertainty or risk mm -hmm. and no judgment on wherever that is in the spectrum. I just had to decide what was right for my family and trust that it was what made mm -hmm. sense for us. Yeah. Could you give us an example? You know, you're mentioning how it's also important. I mean, on one hand, it's very important to rely on our communities, local communities and expat communities to get as much information as we can to know what we have to do in these situations, how to cope with it emotionally, but also practically. But then there's also how can I adapt it to my personal needs? And I'll, yeah, you know, exactly. there's just two sides that I really love that you brought up. So could you give us an example of these two aspects of adapting okay. to a difficult situation in a country and some kind of uh, challenges? Okay, so I'll give you the last example from the coup. Um, there was an, an attempted coup d'etat happening uh, starting on September 16th, 2015. And I was home on a regular Wednesday um, doing our normal routine. And we found out that um, the prime minister and the president had been kidnapped or held hostage. And so I instantly went and grabbed my children and brought them home. And my husband was abroad at the time. Um, so it was just me in the country. And um, I, I stayed uh, calm and very tied to uh, the news and my network on what was going on. And um, as the situation changed and escalated, I kept looking at the factors. And um, like, was this about against foreigners or was it just a governmental conflict what sort of um, things were happening in terms of violence, how close was it. I was doing all of those factors. And then I used that information and tested it against my body of, of the sense of um, what, what level of risk do I feel comfortable with, Be, you know, considering that my husband is um, abroad and the borders were opening and closing. So that meant um, maybe I could fly out with my husband or maybe or to get to my husband or maybe not. It was kind of a scary thing. Um, and I had to really get clear on, am I just afraid and want to get away or is it very prudent for me? And one of my key criteria is um, whether my kids have access to medical care. Mm. And for example, if the, the borders are closed and, Um, everybody's, let's say, in the streets protesting, I wouldn't feel like I could get great medical care um, at that moment. Well, as I could be fine in my house for eight days if that was going on, and it would be no problem. However, as a, a very protective mother, that would make me nervous just in case something happened. Mm -hmm. um, because I've had a normal Saturday where my son um, tripped with a chair and bit his tongue almost in half and then had to have a minor surgery in Waga um, And it was very terrifying because he had to have um, narcotic, I would call it um, anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And that was unnerving for me. Is it a safe clinic? Clinic? I've never heard of it. Is he going to be okay? So I know my criteria is do they have access to um, medical care? And uh, to be honest, can I be an okay mom? <laughs> because if I am on pins and needles <laughs> and, you know, yelling at them like, eat your vegetables, <laughs> then I'm not okay. And um, 
I don't want to transmit that that uh, anxiety onto my children. So if we have the means, if we have the opportunity and it feels um, safer for me and calmer for the whole situation to leave, I, that's my, that's one of my criteria. And, um, with the coup, um, that was scary. I, you know, I have to say I was, I was proud of myself how I handled it, um, much more calmly than I did the revolution, even though the revolution was, a much more positive uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been in West Africa where, you know, thousands and thousands of people were protesting in the street and even marching on my, my road. So I was completely out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And when it just got a little too far for me to feel grounded um, with my partner and it felt like, listen, the, the risks um, that I am uncertain about feel heavy on my heart. And the, the advantages of leaving feel way, really big. So if it doesn't make a major impact, then why why not? That's just my attitude. Other people have a completely different strategy, but I just chose to take a time out um, in that situation. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a personal choice. Other people didn't, and they were completely fine. They had a great time bunkered down in their house. Um, and bonded as a family, um, at the same time, everybody has to make a judgment call and, um, that's, it's up to them. And one piece of advice I would give to people is if you are in a more fragile context and, um, you know, there's potential of that to happen, I would have a conversation with your partner. Like what are our criteria? Mm -hmm. Um, what is my limit and do that before you're in a stressful situation so when you're in it, you have kind of touch points to say, okay, yeah, that is important to me and that need isn't getting met. So let's move to the next step. Mm-hmm. What's plan B? Yeah. So did you move out any of those times? I just, I took, I went to uh, Switzerland for a couple of weeks and let things calm down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came back and it, and it gave me um, a sense of um, security mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of of the philosophy, better safe than sorry. And at the same time, I'm not, um, and this is the first two and a half years, um, that we've lived in West Africa. I have colleagues who've lived in West Africa for 15 years, 16 years, um, maybe in 15 or 16 years, I would, um, do something differently, but that's what, that's what felt right in the moment. I'm really, it wasn't easy. It's easier to stay put. It's easier to. Um, not, you know, separate, um, let's say your family or, or get out of whatever routine you have, but it felt right for me. And mm-hmm. we were lucky to be able to have that choice. Not everybody has that choice. Definitely. Yeah. I remember we, we spoke very briefly before the interview today. Um, and I love the, the fact that you distrust on that, you know, like you were saying how stressed you were because of the attacks that happened, um, last week and it was horrible. Um, but you know, you feel fortunate that at least you've got the choice to leave if if you had to. Right. And and I think I would advise that to, to individuals who who go to areas where there's um, a higher risk involved. Sometimes your organization won't authorize you to go and it will be after your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and as that maybe the the, uh, the employee has very rigid ways of doing it. But if you're, let's say, the partner with your children and you're not obliged to stay I would advise those families to just have a nest egg um, just in case something happened. Because I would hate that because of $2,000, you weren't able to fly out um, mm. in, a, in a crisis situation that felt uncomfortable to you, that mm. for you. Because maybe your organization 
has not assessed it as um, as that critical. But it, for your own boundaries, it mm-hmm. is. So no judgment in that at all. Just to say, okay, this isn't um, like in the U.S. Uh, embassy system. I think they call it authorized departure. Um, so if there is something within your organization where they do or don't authorize a paid departure, do you want to um, have to wait for that authorization? Or do you feel comfortable saying, you know what, this feels right now. Um, I'm going to do that. We have the nest egg. Mm-hmm. And then take take that decision for yourself as long as it doesn't go against whatever rules and regulations for you have for your organization. Definitely, definitely. But it would mean being separated for a bit, I guess, um, yeah, and be, and be yeah. ready for that with your partner. Right. And I mean, it could be two weeks, it could be a month, but if it's, um, if it's something so dramatic where that separation would be six months or, or longer, your organization would definitely yeah. see that as critical. Um, or you need to reflect whether this kind of expat life in these kind of contexts are high fit for you. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. No. You know, there are very, there are like three very important and, and great advice you've been saying here in this last few minutes that I would like to summarize. The first one, when you said that, you know, before even you get to the point where you reach a high crisis level, um, sit down with your partner and discuss what is your limits when is it for you like the limit of staying or leaving it's difficult actually i find to really know i think it should maybe be depending on the country where we are i think depending on the country we know more or less how fragile situations can be and what are the risks that we are um you know exposing ourselves to but i i love the fact that you said that it's important to sit down and discuss it before it happens you know and and the second thing uh, i i I noticed that, you know, this having a place to go back to in case of emergency and planning that, you know, having um, and if the organization doesn't take care of it, we have to be ready to just go, you know, even if it isn't pay for the trip back for at least a few weeks or so. Right. And um, and the fact that, you know, if it's longer, then we have to think of the longer term. And in that case, I guess, definitely, like you said, the organization would be involved in this situation if it's really too dangerous and you can't stay for a longer term and i think these are very critical points of living in a country that and that is in a how to say challenging uh, political or safety situation yeah and yeah. and i'm not and not to say i mean this is for the idea of um taking a break or a step out um, only applies to if you're, uh, let's say you're the tandem partner, you're not the one who has a fixed assignment. Um, you have more flexibility. If you have the assignment, you have very clear boundaries on when, when you can't leave. So that's really important for the family to be clear about um, when they do accept an assignment. The other thing I, I want to emphasize is it sounds easy to just pop out and leave for two weeks and come back. But, you know, if you have got a baby and a two-and-a-half-year-old and you're trying to go through airports and then you have no daycare and you don't know where you're going to stay and it's a, it can be a burden on friends or family or even more financially in a hotel, this isn't – it's not a, an easy thing. It's not – Definitely. Um, it, it's not without impact, but it, it's really important for people to, um, to just think it through. And, and um, as I've said before, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, there are so many 
possible strategies and it just has to make sense for you. Actually, I wonder now with what's happening in Burkina Faso, how how close does it make you with the local people? Are you do you have any friends who are local there? They're at the end the most. I feel in a way the most for them because they're the ones like you said they can't escape the situation so how do you experience this being there and being able to 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 testify what's happening and and being in touch with people who are suffering the most from this situation i think it's um i think for um I think for the Burkina Bay, it's incredibly disheartening because we just went through, so there's 27 years of government from Campore, then the revolution, then the transition government, a peaceful and democratic election, which everybody was really celebrating. And um, we, re I, you know, we, I returned um, from vacation to really look forward to this new year and 48 hours later this happened. So I think people were, um, were looking in optimistically with hope and with pride on the future of Burkina. And now it feels like um, that feels like it put it into question. But the Burkina Bay are extremely resilient, extremely committed to democracy. So I, I believe that the government and the, the population um, are going to stand strong mm -hmm. and create an environment where they send a clear message. This is not going to shake our life. Um, we will take measures to um, be prudent in um, our borders and how we respond to situations. So I do believe that there is a strong intention to, um, to not let this set them back. Of course, um, it's an extremely um, hard blow um, to, to the nation um, on that respect because it was one of those ideas of Burkina felt so... Um, I just, I mean, it's not a surprise, but it felt a little bit like this is a sacred space where that that shouldn't happen. Mm, definitely, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, it must. You, it must. I know from my personal experience, I've been in Serbia, you know, during the war, and then Uganda, and there were these conflicts, and uh, in the neighborhood in in, in Algeria, and I, I wonder. You know, if it doesn't make us closer to the locals when they go through their hardship, because we know exactly what they're going through. Yeah, I feel, yeah, I feel like I wouldn't say, I mean, I feel um, very close to uh, the Burkina Bay feel very close to my heart in terms of my respect um, for them and the way in which um, they conduct themselves in times of trial. So that is, they've already been close to my heart for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but I do feel like as um, someone coming from a very privileged situation, you know, born and raised in a stable government uh, as a child, um, unaffected by terrorism uh, during my uh, formative years, um, in, uh, having uh, access to education, I'm extremely privileged. And so I don't, I didn't grow up knowing um, this environment of, of conflict. And so um, being here, like I said, even in a still a privileged position of I know where I'm going to have I'm going to have food on my table the, the next uh, week. I know that if something's not okay, I have other options. Mm. I feel like it's sort of seeping into my bones just a little bit of wow, that must be really exhausting on the soul mm. um, to have to keep getting hit by by challenges um, over and over again. And like I said, I don't make any assumptions. I understand it. Um, truly, but I, I think it's beginning to seep in at least an awareness of really what 
a, sort of a beginning understanding of what that might be like. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. So tell us, uh, now that you have the experience, you can talk about it in, in a, such a reflective way. And I, I love the way how you, you, you talk about this experience with measuring your emotions and, and trying to put things into perspectives. But how was it before when you didn't know anything about Burkina Faso, when you didn't know anything about the city of Ouagadougou, and then you discovered that you're going there? How did you go through that decision? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm going to out myself on something really embarrassing. Um, but for example, just to put it in perspective, when before we decided to come here, I was the parent who would go to the pharmacy and look at teething gel for their children and go, hmm, should I have the natural one or the chemical one? And I'd be like, No, only the natural one, unless it's really, really bad, then I'll give them the chemical one, you know, or I would be like at the grocery store going, are these apples regional and organic? <laughs> and so I, you know, I had a totally, um, just like I said, the very um, sheltered um, context for my children and, you know, natural and all of these things, low, low, low risk. And um, when we decided to come um, to Burkina Faso, I realized that was opening the door to a lot of risk that didn't exist um, in Switzerland. And I went through the hard work of measuring perceived risk, mm-hmm. um, probable risk, and um, strategies for coping. So I learned that not everything in my head is as scary as it really sounds <laughs> when you're there. And um, so that was that was a definite a journey for me. But what um, happened when you knew? I mean, how did you get to know that you were going there? And actually, actually, was that question asked to you? Did you evaluate if you're going or not? Oh, absolutely. That's something. My hey. husband and I, we I can give you a little background. So yeah. that was um, we were actually living really perfect um, lives in Switzerland. I had my dream job. My husband was working in a great company, wonderful apartment with a little piece of green grass. And our children were very close in the daycare. And so was our work. And everybody from the outside might have said, listen, you guys have exactly what you want. And um, why would you change anything? At the same time, um, there were two things going on. One, my husband had been with the organization for several years and was looking for that next challenge. Um, he also, we met traveling in Vietnam, by the way, so mm-hmm. we both have a hunger for travel and culture, and he had a bit of an itch to do something abroad. I, myself, um, have been abroad for so many years. I was pretty happy with, you know, enjoying the roots I had established uh, in Switzerland. At the same time, as an intercultural specialist and coach, I felt like for me to stay really on the forefront of, of um, supporting my clients, I need to go through more. I need to experience more and stretch myself more. Mm-hmm. Because by this time, I had been in the country for a decade. And all this stretching and learning and growing happened like five, six years ago. And um, all that, that hard adaptation process, I had, I had become comfortable and well-adapted. And I thought, really? Um, in a very developed context. And I thought, you know what? I want to expand who I am professionally even further so I can help not just expats adapting to hard contexts mm-hmm. um, in developed countries, 
but also in in um, less stable contexts. I need to learn another language. I, I need to understand what it's like to live in um, a place that um, isn't thriving economically. So I felt like to live it to give it, mm. as Martha Beck says, I needed to step in to that. And I had bicultural kids, you know, American and Swiss children, mm-hmm. but to, to create the context where I would be raising third culture kids um, felt like the best decision to be able to grow and learn and in turn support um, my clients. Mm-hmm. So you, you basically, if I summarize in one sentence, in order for you, for your husband, he was looking for a challenge and he's been comfortable doing great. And then you too, but in, for on your side, in order to be an even better intercultural management um, consultant or expert, you felt the need to suddenly put yourself again into a situation where you do experience that intercultural, you know, ex- right. management experience. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, what I didn't mention is for my children to say, listen, this is what the world looks like. This, there's this and there's that and there's this thing. It's all very different. They all have pros and cons and they have different ways of doing things. I wanted to expose my children to, um, to another context. Yeah, you are definitely doing that. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Some oh. days I wonder. <laughs> oh no, I'm sure that they're become they're gonna remember this for their whole life, and I think they will become much, uh, you know, no, I don't know how to say, experienced uh, teenagers when they grow and adults, because it's real life, you know, where you are. It's 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 really another part of the world where. It's not through the TV that we get to discover it, but we know exactly what's happening on the field with the sentiment, with the real feeling of, you know, connecting with the locals and knowing what's happening. And I know that as a kid, that made a huge difference uh, for me and for the adult I became today. Uh, I've been always very sensitive with the way the media, you know, reports these events and, and says only like a third of the reality. And it's, and, and I just find it amazing. It, I think it changed my whole perspective of the world, being able to talk with the people who are directly affected with what's happening in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I really see that, um, you know, with my children, the flexibility of thinking that they have. I It took me until I was in my 20s, late 20s, to really get that. You know, there's just the way my son thinks about even th- simple things like totally anticipating multiple time zones, multiple currencies, multiple ways of parenting or being a babysitter. Um, ways of driving, um, the, the way the government functions, how people get from A to B. Even my, I always give this example, my, um, when my son was two years old, he put a plate on his head and walked it into the kitchen. <laughs> I thought it was so sweet because he's watching how women carry fruit, you know, uh. in bowls. And, and so it's just a flexibility of seeing things, mm. um, that is is really beautiful. That, what was what was your challenge, your major challenge in this nomadic life? What was the most difficult part of it for you? Um, you know, you might think that it would be things like you know a revolution or a coup d'état with my little kids in West Africa, but to be that was a totally different level. But I really think that my my ultimate challenge was when I first moved to Switzerland, and at that point, it felt like that's where I was living, you know, forever. And, um, to learn 
German in a Swiss German context, make mistakes all the time, feel like a child, um, give up my my profession in, in the U.S. and and have to start from total scratch. It was like taking my ego and just smashing it on the ground and stomping on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was really hard. Um, it challenged me on so many levels um, to, to find a sense of belonging in um, my husband's friends when I didn't understand the language, even though they were so welcoming of me. I always felt like, you know, in the beginning, I felt like the odd one out, you know, mm. and um, looking at uh, my wonderful in-laws and going, oh, my gosh, am I ever going to speak their language? So we understand each other um, in, a, in an easy, fluid way. And that was daunting. Mm. Um, so I have full respect for people who are in binational marriages and, um, their one individual is adapting to his or her culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, because that's a whole nother dynamic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so you've learned a lot from all of this and what, what is for you, um, the biggest benefit you've, you know, gotten from living abroad? Oh, I think the first one that comes to mind is um, just my the way I see the world is completely different than um, if I had stayed in uh, my hometown and didn't uh, travel and, and meet people face to face and engage in conversations with people who are very different from me and, um, and, and stretch myself <laughs> in so many ways. That is probably um, the number one thing. And the other thing that came up for me was I just feel alive. You know, it's mm-hmm. not easy. It's, you know, it's not always comfortable, but it, it's probably just feeling really in life. Wow. Let's, I would like to know more about you on a professional side. You started your career in Switzerland, didn't you? In Switzerland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's absolutely where I was working professionally as an intercultural specialist. So you worked within a company to help uh the employees, you know, adapt to different cultures, those who had to do business with different countries, right? So I, yeah, I was in, um, what's called a profit center of a corporate training, uh, department. So I worked for the five businesses in my company as well as for external clients in pharmaceuticals or in education or in auditing. And I helped whatever it was, whether it's domestic diversity or international diversity within their company or developing intercultural competence in their leaders, or helping expats who come from abroad into Switzerland, whatever their need was, I created a tailor-made approach to help them um, deal with change or understand how to adapt their communication. Uh, so that I did um, starting in 2008. Okay. And then you started your business before or after leaving? Yep. I, I, it was in tandem. So once I took the decision that we were going to move, I created my own company uh, in 2013. And I've been um, running that since then. So there, your clients are not only in Ouagadougou? Oh, no, 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 no. I have some in Ouagadougou, but a lot from all over the place. Yeah. And you work like virtually or? Yes. You, oh. Yes. So, I, so my Ouagadougou clients, um, they come here to my office or I go to their site to do a workshop, for example. But my other clients, um, it's Skype or it's telephone. If um, if you want someone who is 
experience in a place like West Africa, you kind of have to also deal with the technology problems uh, that come with it. But up until now, it's not been disruptive. So yeah. I'm really grateful that I've always found this. So before we, we, we say goodbye, I would like to know, what is your biggest advice to our listeners to make the best out of their nomadic journey? Oh, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I think what I would advise people is to understand no one said this was going to be easy. <laughs> We have romantic ideas of, you know, moving abroad to France and, you know, having this romantic life or wherever it is they imagine. It's going to be great. It's going to be worth it. But no one said it was easy. So growth um, comes with some pain. Like if you go for a run and you have sore muscles the next day. And so if people understand, hey, I am in a journey like climbing Mount Everest, you understand you have the right resources. That means um, you build your strength through taking care of yourself. You sleep enough. You don't um, drink too much uh, alcohol to where it becomes disruptive. You don't, um, you make sure that you get enough exercise. So you, you create uh, the internal resources and your external resources, your community and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of myself. And I'm ready for the challenges. And the other thing, using this metaphor of a mountain, I would say, and, you know, put your head up and look at the view you're creating. Mm -hmm. That when you are on that journey, you're getting higher and higher on the mountain and your view is changing. And um, to just sort of take that in and say, mm -hmm. this is this is part of it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, yeah, I like it's kind of metaphorical, but I, I do think that's the best way to talk about accepting um, the journey. Mm -hmm. It's a great metaphor, and I like the fact that you focus on, you know, in a way, it's in reflection. I've already just mentioned it before, you know, the importance because we get caught up in so many emotions. You know, we are always challenged as human beings who yeah. are beings of habits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and as an expat, I think this is, for me, one of the biggest challenges of expatriation is that as human beings, we're challenged in our needs of having habits and routines, and we're yeah. challenging those all the time and on top of that we're challenging our beliefs because i know yeah. that as now today if somebody asks me what are my beliefs honestly uh, i will tell them but i will also say hmm, you know what i know that those were changed too <laughs> so and i like the fact that you focused on the importance of looking at the view from the top whenever we go through challenges and try to you know pull our head out and and try to evaluate ourselves how we're doing with those challenges emotionally first i guess yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I get it. I get it. It's not easy, but it's um, it's always about growth. Yeah, definitely. Love it. Thank you. And uh, if Nomad Nation want to reach you, what's the best way to find you? Uh, they can reach me at uh, sundaybean.com. That's S-U-N-D-A-E-B-E-A-N.com. And if they join my newsletter, they'll get a gift called the Expat Trump Cards, as well as insight twice a month on whatever important expat topic is uh, on tap for that month. Great. Thank you so much, Sunday. This was really great. It has been such a pleasure. Oh. I really enjoyed just speaking with you. Thank me, you. Me too. And thank you so much for sharing so openly, especially in such a hard time. I, I can imagine you must be so stressed. And uh, so I'm really, really appreciate you took the time to, to talk with us today. <laughs> It is my pleasure. Nomad Nation, don't miss any of the great inspiration, tips, and insights that will prepare just for you. Go to tandemnomad.com and sign up for the newsletter.